when we talk about the names of God as this this uh, class has been wrestling with over the the past several months um I, I have this this notion this quote from Mordecai Kaplan that I that I always think of and Kaplan said God is the creative life of the universe and the sum of all the forces making a cosmos out of a chaos making a cosmos out of chaos and when you what he meant by that was when you think about <clears throat> the torah everybody knows the story of creation from the torah anybody that knows anything about the bible or the torah at all has heard you know there's all these six days of creation and then the, the end of the shabbat and therefore we're commanded to celebrate shabbat and twice once in genesis once in deuteronomy and in genesis when we're commanded and when we're told about Shabbat, we are told that six days God worked, and on the seventh day God rested, and therefore we're supposed to rest because God rested. God becomes, uh, in so many ways, the ultimate role model for human behavior. And in fact, these, quote, 70 names, or if you're a, a mystic in the Kabbalah, it was 72 names, either way, lots of names, all the different names of God are, are derived from the attributes and the qualities that we would like that our ancestors, our tradition wanted us to hold up as worthy of emulation, uh, to be godlike. Imitatio Dea, not the Hebrew version, was that the Latin version? Imitatio Dea, that, um, never very good in languages. Um, <clears throat> so in any event, the names of God, all those 70 and the hundred and whatever it was from the, the Kalana Shamar, our prayer book, are all literally derived from our ancestors' vision of who we ultimately ought to try to become, the qualities we ought to try to, to our best ability, to incorporate into our own lives, to literally be God-like. So that the name of God, which is Harachaman, which literally means the compassionate one, is a name of God so that we will, if we say recite these names to ourselves, it becomes like a mantra of reminding us of the values and the qualities that we want to emulate. Harachaman, if God's the compassionate one, then it's up to us to be compassionate, which isn't so easy, when particularly it's getting harder and harder to be compassionate uh, in a world that is increasingly polarized. So I would suggest reading the names of God is a great way all those 70 names, is a great way of sort of holding up a spiritual values mirror to ourselves. One of God's names is emet, truth in Hebrew. The quality of truthfulness is under attack today in our world. We all know that. How often do we say, well, I don't know if that's true, and I don't know if that's true, and I don't know what that source is, and I don't know what that source is, and this people say this, and that people say this, about everything in the world, not just about political things, about everything, about science, about medicine, about whatever, about, you know, and this has always been, however, I I don't want to suggest that this is something new, it may be more in our faces now, but don't forget, we've lived, we human beings, through eras when somebody had the nerve to suggest that the uh, earth revolved around the sun rather than the sun revolving around the earth, and I think got killed for it. Things like that. You know, when people would 
be heretics because they challenged the common wisdom of their time, whatever the common wisdom of their time was, they often were punished for that and victimized by that and considered to be heretics. So this isn't a new problem, but it's an ongoing problem of trying to figure out what emet is, what the truth is. And it's one of the reasons that our ancestors had emet, truth, as literally one of the names of God. What I love about emet as a name of God, the Hebrew word for truth is three letters, aleph, mem, and taf. And this is sort of the creative brilliance of Hebrew and why particularly Jewish mystics, study every letter as a a fountain of wisdom. Well, the Hebrew word for truth, emet, as I said, is made up of three letters, aleph, mem, taf. Aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. Taf is the last letter of the alphabet. And mem is the middle letter of the alphabet. And so the Hebrew word for truth is made from the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter of the whole Hebrew alphabet put together which opens up a whole series of possibilities of uh, <clears throat> of midrash and of commentary about so what just what is truth where do you find truth the rabbi said well the first thing is clearly you find truth in torah you find truth in all of the letters of the alphabet put together and in fact that's why the jewish mystics said that the real name of god is stringing all of the letters of the Torah together into one gigantic word, and that's the real name of God. That's a lot of letters, uh, 600,000, I think. If you, if you, if you slick, string them all together, string them all together, you end up with the most powerful mystical name of God. <clears throat> and then because they like to do this kind of thing, they, in particular, it's interesting for this week that we're having this class, because this week's Torah portion coming up, this Shabbat, B'Shalach, is the portion that tells the story last week and this week. Last week was Bo. It was the last three um, plagues of Egypt uh, and uh, the ultimate uh, <clears throat> forcing of Pharaoh to let our people go. And then this week is Pharaoh changes his mind, of course, and they're at the at the shore of the sea and... and uh, Pharaoh's army is coming, and God says to uh, Moses to, you know, hold your arms up and the sea will part. And according to the Midrash, Moses holds up his arms and the sea, in fact, doesn't part. And I'm sure you've all heard this Midrash many times because it's famous. And the famous Midrash is it took one person that the Midrash named Nachshon, was a name from the Bible, from the Torah, took that one person to have enough faith, even though the water hadn't parted, to step into the water. And according to the Midrash, step into the water all the way up to here, and then the water parted. So it really wasn't Moses and Moses' leadership alone and Moses' wisdom and Moses' superpower. The superpower, according to the Torah, according to the Midrash, is in each of us. The superpower of liberation, which is ultimately one of God's most powerful names, is Redeemer, God as Redeemer. Um, that superpower is our faith in redemption itself. It was Nashon's faith enough, just like it was the, the Israelites, even after hundreds of years of slavery. I mean, think of the drama of what, which we celebrate, of course, every Passover, but we also make reference in every single service. Here, the reason I'm mentioning this is because 
you may have heard uh, someone call something from another religion, the greatest story ever told. To me, the story of the Exodus is the greatest story ever told. This is the greatest story ever told. And it's the greatest story ever told because in all of Western civilization, our story of liberation growing out of the Torah has become that iconic story that every oppressed people looks to as their inspiration. It's what we called, you remember in the old days, they used to call them Negro spirituals. And what did they sing? When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. And all those spirituals were all based on our collective Jewish civilization story of we were slaves and we went free. It's the foundational story of our whole civilization. And it is the greatest story ever told. And it's the greatest story ever told really because of what it says about human beings. Because it comes apart, it, it, it was written thousands of years ago, when when you think about it, in all of the world, they had a very different understanding of human beings as expendable, as as nothing. And as by divine right, there were different stratas and levels and castes of society. By divine right, there were people who were kings and there were people who were who were slaves. And you were born into that world. And that's where you belonged. That was the by divine right. Think about the power of the Torah coming thousands of years ago, coming along and saying, no, no. Coming along and saying, the most important idea in the Torah is that every human being is created the Tzalem Elohim in the image of God. Every human being. It doesn't say every human being is created in the image of God, except. There's no except in the Torah. This is the very... First thing we learn about human beings in Genesis, in that story of creation that I referenced before, the very first thing we learn about the human being, the Adam, the, the human, is that we are created at Salem Elohim, in the image of God. And it doesn't say except people who are of different color, or speak a different language, or have a different religion. It's before religion. <laughs> it isn't about religion. It's about humanity itself. And our ancestors took that idea and manifested in this week's Torah portion and last week's Torah portion in the reality of liberation. That what does this story tell us? This story that we celebrate with Passover and every single service when we sing Micha Mocha, that the faith that our ancestors had by putting the blood on their doors and having the angel of death pass over for the 10th plague, the faith that our ancestors who had been enslaved for 100, think about the mindset of slaves, the, had been slave for hundreds of years. It was the original freedom ride and freedom railroad, underground railroad, was our ancestors' willingness to follow Moses literally and to walk one step at a time out of their enslavement into freedom. And the magic of that is we've grown up in with all these cool TV shows and everything, you know, Star Trek is still going, and uh, we have that famous beam me up, Scotty, you know? So when I ask, when I used to ask and work with Bar and Bat Mitzvah kids, and we would talk about this, and I would say, ask them, so how did our, how did the, the, the children of Israel get out of Egypt? How did they go free? How did they end up in the promised land, ultimately? How'd they get there? And as we would discuss it, they would realize they got there one step at a time. They only got, not because... Somebody beamed them up from, you know, Cairo to Jerusalem, not because they were picked up on eagle's wings and flown, or the way that 
the Israelis rescued Ethiopian Jews by sending over big planes and putting them on planes and flying them to Jerusalem or to Tel Aviv. Our ancestors got out of their slavery and their enslavement the same way that you and I have to get out of our own enslavements in life, through our own energy, through our own action, through our own empowerment, through our own steps, one step at a time. And that's why we celebrate this. That's why it's such a powerful story, because it wasn't a supernatural being, even though we have all the pyrotechnics of the plagues in Egypt and all that, even with all of that, and even with the wonderful story of the sea parting, when you really look at the details of the story, you realize it's fundamentally about the human being and the human spirit and the human soul itself. Because if all of the people had said, we're sticking here, we're not going, we never would have got out of slavery. I mean, how often do we talk about immigrants and America in exactly the same way? All of us who are here, every one of us on this Zoom is here today because somebody, it may have been one of you, left wherever they were born in some other country and had the courage and the conviction and the inner strength and the bravery one step at a time to go to a foreign country, namely this one. It was either us or our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents that left whatever their life was like behind in order to come here, just like all of those children of Israel in Egypt. And, and just like our own reality, when we know that it's only a minority of people who have whatever it takes to leave their country and go to a foreign land. In all of the stories of Jewish survival throughout the world, whether it was pogroms in, uh, in the Eastern Europe or wherever it happened to be, we know that it was still only a minority of people who had whatever that inner drive and inner courage it took to leave. The rest of the people stayed behind. The majority of people always stay behind figuring it'll get better. We've lived through it. We'll suffer through it. And the rabbis of commentary on the Torah said exactly the same thing about the Israelites who were in Egypt. They interpreted the story from, in fact, this, this week's Torah portion that has a, a particular word in Hebrew, doesn't really matter what it is, as saying only a certain percentage, maybe only 10%, some argued it was only 20% of those who were enslaved followed Moses. The rest stayed behind. The rest were said, we've survived so far, we're just going to keep surviving. So it was only a minority of people who had what it took to step out and follow Moses, really literally, in the face of the most powerful army on earth, in the face of the most powerful country on earth, in search of their own freedom. And then what did they get? 40 years of wandering in the desert. They didn't even get there. They all had to die out anyway. 40 years of wandering. That's what they had. So what we learn from this in terms of the context of what allegedly I'm supposed to be talking about tonight, which is still the names of God, is that one of the, the name of God, which is liberator, redeemer, is to inspire us to know that we should be redeemers of our own enslavements. And in fact, when we talk about Passover every year, when we wrestle with, we say, read the Haggadah, and we talk about the story, 
each of us is commanded, Bechol door of a door in every generation, Chayav Adam, every individual is obligated, Lirot et Atzmo, to see him or herself, Ki'ilu Hu as if I literally was freed from Egypt. And the rabbi, that's in the Haggadah, in every, nice melody to it too, but I won't sing it. In every event, in any event, every Passover Seder, it says that each of us in every generation, each of us is commanded to see ourselves as if we personally were liberated from Egypt, even though it was thousands of years ago, because the rabbis of Jewish tradition were smart enough to recognize that each of us has our own enslavements in life, whether it's addictions of one kind or another, or simply habits that are hard to break, or self-imposed enslavements that we have to relationships, to work conditions, to one thing or another, and part of the whole Passover experience, and retelling this story every year, as we are commanded in the Torah thousands of years ago to do, it says, Every year you are supposed to be you're supposed to tell your children, teach your children this story year after year, which we've been doing for three thousand years. You're supposed to teach your children so that they will remember, they will know, they will learn, they too can liberate themselves from whatever the the enslavements or whatever it is that's holding them back from their lives and from being fulfilled and from their own promised land their own land of milk and honey, because it's a metaphor. Look, I've often said this, I'll say it again, because this is the last class in this particular series. My favorite quote from Mordecai Kaplan, which by the way, is in this brilliant book I wrote called, never mind, A Year with Mordecai Kaplan. The, um, my favorite quote from Mordecai Kaplan, which I say often, is when Kaplan said that the greatest challenge of the modern Jew is to learn how to take the Torah seriously without having to take it literally. The greatest challenge of the modern Jew is to learn how to take the Torah seriously without taking it literally. And to me, that's such a powerful statement because it's not just about Jews and about Torah. It is the challenge of every non-orthodoxy of every religious tradition to say, what do we do with these texts, these sacred texts that have been passed down for hundreds of years, or in our case, thousands of years, these stories that we know grew out of a different era. You know, you can, if you read the Torah literally, how many times can you say, no, that, that wouldn't have happened. Well, that, that didn't happen. That couldn't have happened. That really didn't happen. That couldn't have happened. And how often, if you're a rabbi or a teacher in a religious school, do you get challenged by students with exactly the same thing? Because they read a story and they go, what is this? What do you mean? Who did that? How could they do that? They didn't do that. Who knows? How do they know who said this and who said that from thousands of years ago? The point is, obviously, it's not to be taken literally, but it is to be taken seriously. It's metaphor of life. It's like poetry. Midrash, it's poetry. When someone says, and I often had this conversation with teenagers, you know, if you read a poem or if you say to someone, I love you with all my heart, are you telling them I love you with my muscle pumping blood? Is that what you mean? I'm not, I love you. This muscle that pumps blood is loving you. Not really. It's a metaphor. It's an image. It's an image that everybody knows what you mean when you say, I love you with all my heart, even though a heart is just a muscle that pumps blood. And it's the same with the messages that we learn from the names of God and the stories of the Torah. You know, names equal qualities and character. 
And our challenge is to bring our own lives in harmony with the qualities of the divine that we have identified as being those that are most powerful. We say God is Rofei Cholim. Here, here's a, I'm not going to read them. Here's a whole series of traditional morning blessings. And we say these blessings, Baruch Melech Olam, Ivrim, which means, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, who makes the blind see. Well, there are people who make blind see. There are doctors who help those who are visually challenged to see. And maybe it's a, instead it's a metaphor of enlightenment. How many times have we suddenly had, quote, our eyes open to something that we were sure was this, and then suddenly we realize, oh, you're right, honey, it's actually that. How often is that? I won't ask my wife because there'll be many, many, many times that I thought this and she pointed out, no, it's actually that. But when we say those words, when we say that blessing, identifying God as pokeach ivrim, the one who gives sight to the unsighted, we are sending a message to ourselves. Or when we say that God is malbish arumim, that is the the uh, clother of the naked, those of us who've been involved in working with homelessness and working with hunger, which is our whole congregation in so many ways, recognizes, oh, if I'm supposed to be imitating God's qualities, then maybe it's up to me to figure out how to provide clothes to those who are clothesless. Or matir asurim is one of the phrases that we identify God, which is freeze the captive. We, Jewish tradition says we are obligated to free captives. We are obligated to, just like, you know, the famous Israeli raid on Entebbe, when they went into Entebbe and they rescued all of those people who were being held captive in the airport in Entebbe years and years ago. That's our obligation. Well, we don't have to. We can turn our back about all those people that are stuck on the borders, who are trying desperately to escape violence from their home countries. We have an obligation if we take our prayers and our understanding of the names of God seriously to be Matir Asurim, to be agents who help to free those who are captive, sitting in cages, sitting in jails, sitting. What about all those people who are in prisons because of their race or because of their poverty, but not because they did something wrong? How about all? And we have all these projects going on in the world, these redeeming projects, looking at DNA and trying to help those who have been unjustly incarcerated to be freed. That's following the traditional morning blessing challenge, because I see these blessings as a challenge. I read them every day, every morning, I recite them. And every morning to me, it's a personal challenge. It's a spiritual challenge of how can I be the person who acts in my life in a way that brings that quality of holiness, of divinity into the world. Um, So, Rofei Cholim, God is the one who heals the sick. Well, we can pray for healing, and we do. And there's lots of uh, examples of the efficacy of prayer in healing. Or, and we can also take it into our own hands, our own healing, and say, I'm not just leaving it to someone else to be my healer, but I'm going to participate 
in the process of healing. And how do I participate? I learn, I study, I find out what people say about this, that, or whatever condition I happen to have, or whatever challenge I happen to have physically. And I get involved in my own personal healing liberation. And in doing that, I become Rofei Cholim, one of the fundamental names of God, healer of the sick. And share that wisdom with others. Share that with people, uh, because I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've been going through this process the last couple of years, and many people know, I've had people who called me up and go, okay, so you're doing well, what are you doing? What have you been doing? What What's your own routine? What how have you what have you learned about your own particular physical challenge? And how are you meeting it? Um, and I share with them because they ask, I don't go around preaching it, but I share with them if they ask what my own process has been, or what I learned from my own oncologist, which and that's me, helping to be Rofei Cholim, healer of the sick, first of myself, because, you know, put the mask on yourself first, we say when we get on airplanes, which most of us don't get on anymore very much. But when you get on an airplane, we all know, they say, put the mask on yourself first, you're supposed to, that's a lesson. It's one of the most important lessons in life, you got to take care of yourself, you take care of yourself, and then you can help take care of other people. So the point is, names of God are reflections of qualities that we in so many ways need to and are challenged to exhibit in our own life. One of the most powerful names of God is Oseh HaShalom, maker of peace, maker of shalom. In fact, shalom itself is a name of God. One of the reasons, I think I mentioned this in one of the earlier classes, one of the reasons that traditional Jews won't have a placemat that says shalom on it in front of their door, because they feel like you're stepping on the name of God if you step on the placement that says Shalom, because it's one of the 70 names of God is Shalom. But think about what that implies, because we know that Shalom doesn't mean peace. We use Shalom to say hello and to say goodbye and peace. But Shalom comes from the Hebrew root Shalem, which means wholeness. Peace is not an absence of conflict in Hebrew, in Jewish civilization, in Jewish values. Shalom slash peace is integration of self and of world. It's wholeness. That's what it be, makes peace. You you are peaceful when you literally put all the pieces together. I like that. Your peace, when you put the pieces of things together and become whole, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and socially. Look at our country. Look at how divided we are. Everybody's complaining about how divided we are. No matter what side of whatever aisle you're on, no matter what side of whatever argument or discussion you're on, everybody bemoans the fact that we are increasingly polarized, increasingly polarized. How are we ever going to solve all the challenges and problems of life when all we're doing is arguing with each other? That's the Jewish idea of our challenge is to be like God, Oseh Shalom, a maker of wholeness, a maker of putting the pieces together. Again, and if we had that as one of our mantras in life, if we held that in front of us, like we should send this this podcast, Bert, I'd like you to send this to all of the members of Congress afterwards, okay? So we should send this to all of the people who are in positions of power anywhere, locally, statewide, nationally, wherever in the world, United Nations, their job should be Ose Shalom. Their job should be makers of peace, putting the pieces of the world together 
which is how you resolve conflict. And that's why we have so many, why do we have so many names of God? Why don't we just say God? Why does our tradition actually have, quote, 70 names of God? Part of it is so that all of us can say, well, I have a version of what I believe God is. You have your version. And there isn't one right answer in this. There isn't one right name. There's a plethora of names. There's as many names of God as there are, I think. There's not 70 names of God. There's seven plus billion names of God that every human being has his or her own understanding of that which is sacred in the world, that which is bigger than him or herself. Because part of why being involved in Jewish civilization has been so powerful and why we're still here after thousands of years and there's only 10 of us running around the world. Well, there's many, maybe a little more here on this Zoom, but you know, there's hardly any Jews out there in the world. Seven, almost 8 billion people and we have 15, maybe 14, 16 million Jews in the world. It's such a insignificant percentage of the world population that nobody should even know we exist. Literally, we literally, they shouldn't know we exist. But as I always say, we're small, but very loud. We make a lot of noise. And therefore, people know who we are because we're making a lot of noise. But apart from that, the challenge is to recognize that every single human being, starting with the teaching that I already shared, again, of being every human being made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God, every human being is wrestling with the same fundamental challenges and questions of life. How do I find meaning and purpose in life? How do I fulfill myself and my own? What am I here for? What's my job in the world? Why was I born? You know, Jewish tradition says, if you weren't supposed to be here, you wouldn't be here. The very fact that you're here means you got a unique task because there isn't anybody else like you. Our our tradition was perhaps the first, I don't know, apparently the first to insist that every single human being is not only made in the image of God, but is a one of a kind that ever was. There's never going to be another you. So you have your own one of a kind, unique role in the universe because nobody else can do you, you know? There's nobody, nobody has power over you because you're the only thinker in your mind, as Louise Hay used to say. You, it's up to you. It's up to you to be the Rofei Cholim, the healer of the sick, and the Matira Sarim, the freer of the captive, and the Malbish Arumim, the clother of the naked. You know, um, that's our challenge. So um, I, I want to share with you something. I'm watching the time, but also my favorite names of God. Um, oh, by the way, I knew I wanted to spend a moment on Kabbalah. Lots of people like reading about Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Uh, in the Zohar, the, the, the book of Jewish mystic, mysticism, they actually use this week's Torah portion to talk about the names of God. There are three verses in this week's Torah portion. I'll just read them in English. The three verses are the following. They're Book of Exodus, Chapter 14, 19, 20, and 21, in case you're interested. And the angel of God, which went before the camp, of this is how we just went forth, right, from Egypt. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed, went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went before their face and stood behind them, meaning God was intervening to protect them from the Egyptians. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night 
to the Israelites. So that they, the one came not near the other in the middle of the night. So they, the meaning, the Egyptian army was in darkness and there was a cloud there covering them like deep fog. So they couldn't see in front of them. So they couldn't charge. And this was protecting the Israelites. And the third verse says, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and God caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. That's the short version of that. The Kabbalah, the Jewish mystics in the Zohar took those three verses and they said each verse has 72 letters. This is how Jewish mystics think. Each of those verses has 72 letters and they reflect, therefore, 72 names of God. And more than that, each of those verses is one long 72-word name of God, say the mystics. And they represent certain three different qualities, each of those three verses that are typical uh, mystical Jewish qualities. They're in Hebrew, the words of chesed, geburah, and tiferet. Chesed means loving kindness. And it was God as an example of loving kindness, taking care of this poor ragtag group of slaves and protecting them so that they could escape from the powerful hand of the Egyptians so that we are supposed to model loving kindness in our own lives. Not always easy. One of the things I loved about Bob Saget, may his memory be a blessing because his memory will be a blessing because he was a blessing, was that he was the essence of chesed, of loving kindness, always there for everyone. And the second quality of God protecting us was in Hebrew called gevura, which means strength and shield. Gevura and strength and shield. That we are supposed to, say the Jewish mystics, we are supposed to be a shield, to shield those who are weaker than us from oppression in the world and imitate God in that way. And the third is tiferet, which literally means sort of splendor. It's the one, it's the light of the divine, the literal light. And one of the things that we learn from the Torah and from studying the names of God is that when you think back about how I started this 45 minutes ago, talking about the story of creation, what's the first thing that's created? Well, it's a rhetorical question because I know you know. The first thing that's created in the Torah is light. Vayomer Elohim yihi or, and God said, let there be light, vayihi or, and, and there was light. That's the very first thing created. Created a couple of days before the sun was created, right? So that we know that the light that God created, according to the mythology of Jewish creation, wasn't from the sun. It was divine light. It's why there are such things uh, in Christian world called divine light missions, because they recognize that the first thing created in the Torah by God, according to the Jewish mythology, was this divine light out of which everything else was created. And that our job is to search for the light, the divine light that still exists in the world. And the Jewish mystics, of course, have this notion that that light was so powerful that the whatever God, the vessels that God created couldn't hold that light. And so the vessels broke and, and the light broke out from burst forth from those vessels and went into all the matter of the universe, and that our job is to look for and discover in the matter that we experience, meaning the people and the opportunities we have and the and the relationships we have, 
the spark of the divine that's within every single human being. And that, that spark of the divine is from that original divine light that was the first thing that God created. And that our challenge constantly is to bring out that light, that tiferet, that splendor that the mystics talk about is the divine light that is the source of creation of the whole universe. You know, um, the ninth plague, to circle back to that, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. And the rabbis of the Midrash say, even though the, the t- when the text says there was darkness over all of Egypt, except for where the, the children of Israel lived, there was light. And they interpret that not literally, but spiritually. And the Midrash says there is darkness, and the darkness that the Torah is referring to isn't the light of the sun, but it's an inner darkness that there is darkness when one human being no longer can see the suffering of his or her neighbor and is able to bring and willing to bring light to that suffering and help heal that suffering. That's when there's, that's when there's darkness. And that's the darkness that the, the Torah is referring to. It was that the Egyptians turned their backs on the enslaved Israelites and refused to recognize them. It's very similar to the story of the enslavement of African Americans here in our country for 400 years, where our ancestors here in America wrote laws and created a caste system that we still have the remnants of today, where they turned a blind eye literally to the suffering of those who were enslaved and treated them not like human beings. And if you pick up this best-selling book that I'm in the middle of reading called Cast, it will be disturbing to read. But if you read it, um, the author talks about caste system of America and the caste system of India and compares them to the caste system of Nazi Germany, which we all, as part of the Jewish civilization, experienced personally, where the Nazis treated Jews and taught their civilization that unlike religious anti-Semitism, which for the first couple of thousand years of Christianity was the kind of anti-Semitism that we experienced, which was about our religious rejection of Jesus as the son of God and the savior. And if that was that kind of anti-Semitism had a remedy, the remedy was you become Christian. The remedy is you believe. And if you accept the Christianity, then you're no longer Jewish and you get redeemed. You get baptized, you get redeemed. The Nazis' version of anti-Semitism was fundamentally different. It was, quote, racial anti-Semitism. It's anti-Semitism that said, it's my Jewish blood that makes me a pariah. I can't do anything about my Jewish blood. I can't convert out of my Jewish blood because it's the nature of who I am as a human being, one drop of blood that's Jewish by a grandparent or a great-grandparent or whatever they decide to choose, makes me a pariah in society and fundamentally evil and dirty and polluted and connected to the devil. And you might ask, so where do they come up with that idea? This is a slight diversion, but I was so moved by reading this book as I'm still reading it cast, 
the place that the Nazis got this idea was from our own United States of America and all the laws we had about uh, African-Americans in America in the past. The miscegenation laws, the laws that said whites couldn't marry blacks, that, by the way, still were on the books until 1967 in America, and the laws that said, and the social attitudes and social norms that said black people are polluted and therefore they aren't allowed in a public pool because they would pollute the pool. And all the experiences that people have more in the South than others, but not just in the South, of they would have separate times for black people and white people to go to public pools because after the black people went to the public pool, they have to drain all the water, clean the pool and fill it with new water. This is the United States of America. And in fact, she documents all of the Nazis before they got to the final solution of wanting to kill everybody, they literally shared, studied American laws about African-Americans and about blacks in America and modeled all of their laws and the Nuremberg law, all those laws on our own country. We, the Jewish people from thousands of years ago, have told a very, very different story. And that story is what's kept us alive throughout our wandering with each other because we are not a we are a communitarian religious civilization and we have taught ourselves through our rituals and our customs and our traditions and our values and our texts that we pass down generation to generation to generation that human beings are fundamentally made but Salam Elohim in the image of God and even though we've not always every one of us acted in that way obviously as a community and as a whole we have. And as a community and as a whole, we've taken these names of God and we have literally used them as our own personal spiritual mantras and challenges of how we should be in the world and the kind of human beings we should be and the way should we, we should be acting um, in the world as human beings and fulfilling ourselves. What it means ultimately simply to be a human being, um, to be a mensch in the world is by living our lives according to the names of God. The Midrash says that, quotes, God is saying, Ani nikra asai. I am known according to my action. And we all know the famous story from the Torah of Moses, who says to God, after their buddies, and they, you know, God and Moses have this unique friend relationship, so to speak, where God shows, speaks, shows God's face to Moses, and they speak panim el panim, face to face, and the Torah proudly says, no other person has ever spoken face to face to to God except Moses, and so Moses takes the liberty of saying, okay, show me now, show me your essence, show me who you are, and even then, God famously says, I can't, I can't show you my essence, but I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and by what I do in the world, that's how you'll know me by healing the sick, by freeing the captives, by clothing the naked, by fulfilling all of these mitzvot, by fulfilling all of these activities that bring harmony and wholeness and shalom into the world, that's how you'll know who I am. That's how you'll know my action, which is why I just quoted the Midrash, God saying that I am known, I'm called by my behavior, by my actions. As I've said before, 
as we always say, every time we do a baby naming, each of us has at least three names. The name our parents give us, the name our friends call us, and the name that we earn for ourselves in the world. And all of us know, look at Bob Saget and every single story. It's the name that we earn for ourselves in the world that matters. It's the name that we earn, you know, Bob's name, he was proud of his name, literally his name, Robert. He was proud to carry it. He was named after one of his siblings who died at birth. You know, his mother had, before Bob was born, had twins who died in the hospital. Uh, horrible tragedy. Uh, she gave birth in Philadelphia in a hospital, and there was some disease that, that hit, and every one of the babies in the nursery died in the hospital that day, including the twins that she had just given birth to. And then Bob had two older sisters. Uh, one of his sisters died from an aneurysm at age 32, and the other sister died from scleroderma. So his parents had four children die. And Bob was named Robert after the boy twin who had died and carried that um, proudly throughout his life. You know, and look at, you know, I said this uh, uh, a class or two ago. Think about how you relate to your own name. Think about how many of us have changed our names or have chosen names or have added names or have, when you do a conversion, I'm doing a, a uh, conversion this week of somebody who's choosing Judaism. And uh, part of the process of conversion is he gets to choose a Hebrew name, chooses a Hebrew name because conversion really to Judaism is more adoption. We are a family. We are act as not as individuals who have personal beliefs, but as a community, as a tribe, we are the children of Israel. We are those who, either by birth or by adoption. We are a, an Arab Rav, a mixed multitude who went forth out of Egypt because when Moses went and our ancestors followed, Moses said, anybody who wants to come to freedom and come with me, come along. And Torah very specifically identifies that group as not just the children of and descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but people who wanted freedom. And it's that mixed multitude who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's that mixed multitude who said, yes, we will accept these commandments. Yes, we will accept this way of life. Yes, we will create this civilization called Judaism. It's that mixed multitude of people born and not born from Jewish parents who chose to be part of this Jewish community and continue to do so today, 3,000 years later, as this young man named Chris will be doing this week, um, going to a Beit Din, going to the mikveh, choosing a Hebrew name in anticipation of marrying one of the lovely young ladies who grew up in our congregation next month. In any event, um, the power of names and of choosing our own name. I mean, other cultures have what spirit animals, perhaps they say. Um, and there's a, that it's like taking on another name by identifying with a particular kind of quality. Why do they pick that spirit animal? Because of the quality of it. Not because, you know, I like the way that bird looks, or I like the way that that fox looks, because of the qualities that they want to incorporate and see as something that can inspire them to be a particular kind of person in the world. Our version of that is 70 names of God. Our version of that is these blessings that we recite in the morning. Our version of that is taking what Kaplan says, taking seriously, not literally, all that's been passed down from one generation 
to the next generation. And recognizing that when we, when, when Kaplan said that very first quote that I said, that God is the sum of those forces making a cosmos out of chaos, it's because that's the whole story of creation in the Torah. You know, from the broadest category of light and dark to the earth and the rest of the universe, to the water being separated from the land, and then to all the plants, and then all these different animals, and then finally human beings as the crown of creation. And so our story of creation in the Torah is literally exactly what Kaplan said. It's seeing God as divinity, as that process of making order out of chaos. And when we as human beings create civilizations with laws that that reflect not only justice, but compassion and mercy, we are imitating God in the highest way. And in the best way, we are helping to bring wholeness and order out of the chaos of the world. And nobody likes chaos. Well, some people maybe do, but most of us spend our lives trying to bring order to the chaos of our lives. In fact, there are people, a few people in the congregation whose entire career is coming into your house and ordering things, making order out of the chaos of your home, you know, because it can drive you crazy. And that's another way, a version of imitatio dea, of imitating God. And I once gave a, a class called the Five Jewish Ideas That Changed the World. Maybe I'll do that next time. It's kind of fun. Five Jewish ideas that change the world. But uh, one of them is that every human being is created in the image of God. Um, But it's also one of those ideas is the notion that what we are here on the earth for is to bring shalom to the world, that that's our fundamental spiritual challenge. Each of us in our own unique way with our own unique gifts and our own unique voice. And it's not easy to find your voice. I obviously found mine. I've been talking for an hour, nonstop. Um, you see? So when I was in first grade, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade, when I was in kindergarten and the kindergarten teacher put tape over my mouth, I'll show her. So <clears throat> in fact, my sister today said, I wish that woman was still alive and knew that you were a rabbi after all this time. I would show her. In any event, this is what happens when you put tape over a kindergarten person's mouth. And this is what a uh, hyperactive kid looks like when he grows up ends up doing things like this. So um, I'm uh, conscious of the time. And um, I want to thank everybody for uh, logging in and sticking it out for this last hour with my nonstop Jewish rambling about all of these various and sundry things. I appreciate you being here. Um, There will be this uh, posted on our website where we have all of the podcasts and as you can also follow Ramy uh, I mean Amy not Ramy Ramy's my best one of my best friends got an email from him today about Bob Saget so I was thinking about Ramy but all of Amy's Torah classes and all of her Torah classes you can find uh, on our podcasts if you uh, aren't listening Friday morning you can do it anytime and access it and, and learn about each Torah portion as well we have all of our adult uh, classes and other things as well lectures and stuff posted there so that people can not have to be literally present, and which is particularly helpful during this ongoing pandemic craziness where we're now once again doing things just like this. But uh, I really appreciate you showing up and appreciate you seeing you all and letting me into your home. And uh, see you all soon.